0: 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is a continuation of message we started three weeks ago about David and Bathsheba. You need an outline, I think Ed has a few left. And We still have PowerPoint. Let me read you a story. Then we'll review what we already talked about. In Texas, football is a very big deal. That's why the consequences of this story are so profound. On Friday, December 18, 1998, the football team from Katy High School in the suburbs of Houston boarded a bus bound for Irving, Texas, while the marching band bellowed out their school fight song. The Katy Tigers were preparing to defend their Class 5A Division II state title. They were the defending state champs with a good shot at repeating that feat. While sitting on the bus in anticipation of playing on the same field as the Dallas Cowboys, the coach, Mike Johnson, instructed the players to get off the bus and meet him in the field house. Johnson told his team that they would not be going to the championship game For the first time in Texas high school football history, they are disqualified from participating on the eve of their title game. Two weeks previously, a senior, whose name was not released, played in the final three plays of KD's 40 to nothing victory over the Brook High School. During the week after Thanksgiving, the senior had falsified grades and forged the signature of his progress reports to hide the fact that he was failing two classes. According to the University Interscholastic League, the UIL, a player cannot participate in sports if he is not passing all of his classes. When a teacher saw this young man preparing to travel with the team while knowing he was failing her class, the violation was reported to the principal who in turn informed the UIL. Just a brief time before the team was scheduled to leave for the championship game, the verdict of complete forfeitures was made and the Katy Tigers were forced to stay home and watch the game on TV. The team that they had beaten the week before went and played in their place. Although many people felt the penalty was too harsh, the verdict stood because the rules and penalties are clearly stated, and every school is required to comply with all the regulations. Only one player broke the rules, and he alone knew what he had done. He was a marginal player who was on the field for just three plays during the playoffs, but when his deeds were discovered, a host of innocent people were hurtfully impacted by what he had secretly done. We seldom believe that the consequences of our private lives will hurt others. But the lesson from Katy, Texas, is clear that there are consequences for our sin. And doesn't this, in a way, talk about David? David knew what he had done. It was wrong. And he tried to cover it up. And innocent people suffered. Not just the people who were killed along with Uriah when they attacked that fortress, but many others suffered because of him. So we're going to review what we had talked before. David, a man after God's own heart, willfully and deliberately sinned, and only committed adultery, he committed murder. And innocent people suffered. Let's look at... Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, review ourselves and remind ourselves of the principle of sowing and reaping. There's a principle that God gives us in his word. It's clearly stated in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. It talks about sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind. For for they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind, The standing grain has no heads it yields no grains should yield strangers which swallowed up sowing the wind is going along doing your own thing reaping the whirlwind is a tornado Israel spent time sowing the wind by practicing idolatry they reaped the whirlwind of invaded by Syria and being taken into captivity and their nation ceased to exist we also look at Proverbs chapter 6 verses 27 29 we don't need to turn there but Solomon asked his sons two rhetorical questions it's impossible to engage in immorality without being hurt. Can a man take fire into his bosoms and not get burnt? No. Then Galatians 6 and 7 and 8 tell us we reap what we sow, right? And we always reap more than we sow. You always get more produce than what you plant. And that's what happens. The consequences of our sin is always greater than the pleasures that we enjoy. Then we looked at the illustration of the principle of sowing and reaping about David. David the sinner. Let's go to chapter 11, if you will. And David's sin of adultery, there are two factors that led up to it. First of all it was David's laziness. Verse 1 tells us when the kings went off to war, and where should David have been that day? On the field with his army. He stayed back. which was led to the second thing he did was David's lust. David wasn't out to the battlefield, but he was home looking at some other women. Bathsheba's house is probably across the street from David's palace. He was walking out. He looked, and he saw Bathsheba bathing there then his lust started to percolate, as you might want to say. David had a problem with that. How many wives and concubines did he have? How many do you really need? Because Deuteronomy tells us there are three things that kings should not do. Deuteronomy 17. One was multiplying horses, another was multiplying money, and another one was multiplying wives for himself. And That's what David did. You think one wife would be enough, but he had many other wives and many more concubines. So David was involved with laziness and lusts. That led to. Well, let's before we go on to the next point, let's go to James chapter one. We talked about this a couple weeks ago as well. What led David into temptation to sin is what James one describes about our own lives. Go to James chapter one. Look at verse fourteen. The reason for David's temptation, well, verse fourteen of James one tells us. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. David's lust was for other women, and that's where Satan tempted him. Same thing happens to us. Satan knows what tempts us. It may not be immorality, it may be lying, it may be deceitfulness, it may be materialism, whatever it is. Satan knows how to push our buttons, and he does. And we see David's reaction to temptation in verse fifteen: when lust has conceived, he gives birth to sin. David gave birth to sin by committing adultery, committing murder, and by his child dying. All those things are the results. People died. When sin comes full term, bad things happen. For Christians, it's, 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 it's death that destroys our fellowship with Christ, doesn't it? For unbelievers, it's hell, spiritual death. Look at verse 15: the, the results. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And it did. Not just Uriah and Bathsheba suffered and David suffered, but multiple of other people, and we're going to talk about that today, suffered as well. We see David's, not only David's sin of adultery, we see David's sin of deceit in verses 6 through 13. David tries to cover up his plan. But you realize that you can't cover up your sin. First of all, he has an unscrupulous plan. He tells Joab, bring your son Uriah home for the purpose of him going home and spending time with his wife. David even sends him some champagne and caviar with him. Go home, enjoy yourself with your wife, and you don't have to go back for a day or so. Well, Uriah doesn't do that. Where does he go? He goes and he sleeps in the courtyard someplace. So how can I go and spend time with my wife when the army's out fighting? So David says, okay, just spend another day here. Maybe that might work. Then David sort of added to it by getting him drunk maybe getting Uriah drunk he'll go home and spend time with his wife they'll cover up my sin because he knows Bathsheba's pregnant now people think that as Uriah's baby not mine the only problem was it was an unsuccessful plan he doesn't go home and spend time with his wife don't you hate it when your plans don't work out especially your plans to sin do you see God working in the background had God forgotten what David had done no see David's sin and murder now we see the details in verses 14 through 21 we see the treachery he sends a note with Uriah telling Joab put Uriah in the first part of the battle then withdraw for him make sure he gets killed Uriah is carrying his own death warrant with him he has no idea what's going on the treachery involved there and the tragedy is Uriah is basically murdered even though David didn't do it David planned for it and who else dies? all the other soldiers who are with him Oh, the death is starting to pile up. James one fifteen is starting to come true, right? The result is death. Then we see the deception here. David pretends that he is sore, Uriah is done, and he's surprised. And he says, you know, with hypocritical consolation, he tells the soldier, go back and tell Joab that, you know, death The life and death matters are just a blind chance. You know, death takes one and life takes another. You know, it doesn't make any difference. People die in battle, so don't worry about it, Joab. But look at the last part of chapter 11. We got verse 27. What does it say there? The last verse. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. King James has displeased the Lord. David thought his... Tracks recovered. But the reality is, God knows what's going on in your life right now. Whatever we're trying to cover up right now, God knows. David broke four commandments. Can you name them lying, murder. What else were that? Adultery? And false witness. Coveting. He coveted his foot neighbor's wife. See, the thing is, we talked about this. David took advantage of God's grace so many times. When David got in trouble with the Philistines. God got him out of it. When David was ready to go kill Naban, remember that? God got him out of it. Now God says, uh-uh. You've relied upon my grace too much, David. Now it's time to pay the piper. Because sometimes Christians do that. They get in trouble, and then God gets them out of it. What do they end up thinking? Why do you still do this? I'm not get in trouble. This is why we appease our children all the time. they discipline for what they're doing wrong. They figure, well, I can still keep on doing this. I'll never get punished. God steps in. See, before God didn't step in, but now God steps in. When God steps in, God steps in clearly, right? Then we saw David's sorrow in chapter 12. David, to the best he could, to cover up his sins. And he probably nobody knew. I'm sure Joab suspected what was going on. And I'm sure, remember the night when he saw Bathsheba what did his servant tell him? He said, Who's that woman over there? What did the servant say? Well, that's Bathsheba, but it's Uriah's wife. Think the servant may have known had an inclination of what David was planning on doing? Here, David's thinking he's getting away with everything, but God knows. <clears throat> and most commentators think there's like six months to a year that David lived in his life of hypocrisy. She found out the baby was born. Now, how long it takes from a woman to. When the impregnation begins and when she realizes she's pregnant, a month or two, I don't know. But then David found out and he tried to hide all this. After Uriah died, she, he waited for this period of mourning, which was seven days. Then he married Bathsheba. So six months to nine months to a year, who knows? David's living this lie. He's hiding this. Psalm 32 tells us what David's life experienced while he was doing this. Talks about the David's physical problems. He couldn't sleep. He felt physically bad. The sin was guilt was just crushing him. In Psalm 51, David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan, talks about him having no joy. He was afraid to lose God's presence because God took his spirit away from Saul. And David thought, maybe God's going to do this to me now. He's going to take away his spirit from me. So David's having problems with guilt. Let's look at the confrontation. God steps in by the person of Nathan. Nathan gives an illustration, talks about a shepherd. Now why did he pick the illustration of a shepherd? Because David knew about shepherding, didn't he? He was a shepherd. So the illustration hit home. He tells a story about how this rich farmer with many lambs takes the sole young ewe lamb of a poor farmer and kills it to give to us to eat. Uriah is the poor farmer. David's the rich farmer. Bathsheba's the ewe lamb. And the traveler is sin that comes along and entices us. And how does David respond? You see the indignation in verses 5 and 6. This man deserves to die, David says. But not really. Because for stealing, what was the penalty? You had to pay back four times what you stole. So you took one lamb, you got to pay back four lambs. Penalty wasn't death. But the identification is found in verses 7 through 9. What does Nathan say? David, you're the man. You are the man. And then we read in verses 7 through 9 all the things that God gave David. God gave David position as a king, protection from Saul and all his enemies, possessions and wives and power. David, I gave you all these. I would have given you more, he says, if you wanted. But you don't deserve this woman. It's not yours to get take. It says David despised God and his word, and that word despise means to treat with contempt. That's how the world treats God today. How does the world treat God? With contempt. How do they world treat Christians? With contempt. So you want to know what contempt means? Just think of how the way the world treats God is the way David treated God in his word, with contempt. Let me see the imprecation, which is the curse that is pronounced upon David. Four things. Death. But well, This isn't your outline, by the way. But death. The sons are going to die. Defiance. The sons are going to rebel against them. Same way you rebel against me, David, your sons are going to rebel against you. Defilement. Same way, David, you defiled Bathsheba, your own wives and concubines are going to be defiled by others. Then disclosure. I did this thing in secret but David, I'm going to do this to you in broad daylight. Everybody's going to know what's going on. This is what's going to happen to David. And it did. And it continues to happen. Look at the confession, verse 13. Now, this is a great verse. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David cuts the quick. He confesses his sin. He knows, he, who did he sin against? He didn't say, I sinned against Uriah. He didn't say, I sinned against Bathsheba. Who did he sin against? God. When we sin, we sin against God. I sinned against the Lord. David could have excused. You know, I had too many Twinkies that day, you know. It was all my father's fault. He didn't bring me up. My mom, she was a terrible mother. He doesn't rationalize, doesn't give excuses, doesn't blame someone else, doesn't look for a loophole. He just simply says, I am the man. (laughs) I am. I confess. Just think if David had done that six months ago. The sad thing is, David confessed because he was confronted, not because he was convicted by the sin. Well, he was convicted, but he didn't give in to the conviction. He didn't co- confess his sins. We looked at Psalm 86, verse 5, which says, God is ready to forgive, and God's always ready to forgive. We looked at Psalm 51 and talked about there are four true. How can we re- identify true repentance? Psalm 51 verse 4, David says, I have sinned. There will be open, unguarded admission of sin. Some people say, that I'm sorry I got caught. How do we know what true is, repentance is? Well, number one, there will be open, unguarded admission. David says, I have sinned. In verse 10 of Psalm 51, there will be desire to make a complete break from the sin. David says, God created me a new heart. This heart, remember what God says about David? Man whose heart is totally his, right? Well, David realized he needed a new heart. He broke the old one with sin. David wants, give me a new heart, God. Let me start all over. Then verse 17. David was grieved over what he had done. He was broken and humbled. And then finally we saw in verse 12, the claiming of God's forgiveness and rest- reinstatement. He says, David, David says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And that's true repentance. Getting your sin out to the open, confessing it, asking forgiveness, restoring your relationship with the persons you offended, including God, and paying restitution. Then we see the consequences in Verse 14 does it say there? However, Nathan says, because of this deed, you have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that was born, you shall surely die as well. People are blaspheming me, David, because of your actions. And that happens when Christians sin and the world knows about it. They blame God. They blaspheme God. Also, the baby dies. Now, why does the baby die? People have problems with this passage. Why does God allow that baby to die? What did that baby do to deserve death? That's true. The baby gets killed in a terrible car accident because of the drunken driver. How can a loving God allow that to happen? Well, I say to a person, what caused the accident It was the drunken driver. Who's responsible? The drunken driver's responsible. Who's responsible? David's responsible. One commentator suggested gives us a principle the result was that the child would die and the idea is often the innocent suffer because of our selfish and sinful choices maybe that's what God wants us to learn innocent people suffer because of your sinful and selfish choices so be careful in the choices you make because always innocent people suffer isn't that the truth always someone else suffers but the world likes to blame God no, you blame the sin, you blame the sinner. The thing is, David knew there's gonna be consequences for sin, but he still did what he did. We all know that, don't we? You know the consequences for sin. Yeah, why do we sometimes we go out and we sin? Because we're human. We got sin nature. There's no excuse, right? Did we talk about the next part? The consideration Do we talk about that? Oh, good. This is all brand new. Well, let's pray now. So that was the background. There's still more stuff we've got to learn here. Lord, we just thank you for the life of David. He was a man after your own heart. But he's also a normal man, susceptible to sins and desires just like we are. And the truth be told, we're no different than David. If the right opportunity comes along, we'll probably sin as well. But Lord, there are principles here that will help us and keep us from entering the whirlwind of sin. And there are some principles that help us while we're in this whirlwind of sin and how to get out of it. Lord, I pray as we talk about these principles this morning, Lord, we'll understand. There's some, maybe someone right now who is experiencing the whirlwind of their situation, of their sin. They're in this terrible storm. It seems like there's no end in sight. But today, Lord, we can learn some principles that will help us. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Fill us all with your spirit to understand your word and apply it to our lives. And we do ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A consideration, four things. God may choose you to confront someone else. This we're told in Scripture, you know, bear one other burdens, you know, help the one who were spiritual, we sure the one who has fallen. Four things to help us. Number one, absolute truth. Do not go on hearsay or innuendos. You get the facts. Remember in the Old Testament? How many witnesses did you need to convict someone? Two or three witnesses? Just because one person said, I saw so and so doing this, doesn't mean it's a fact. Find out. Get the facts first. Absolute truth. And then also speak the truth in love, as Peter tells us. Our purpose is restoration, not destruction. And then the right timing. The wrong time may cause a person to be driven deeper into their sin. God waited almost a year, didn't he? Before he told Nathan to go confront David because he wanted David to be so torn up by his conscience and his guilt that he was ready to seek forgiveness. If Nathan would have gone too soon, maybe David would have rationalized and blamed someone else. But God waited until David was brought to the end of himself. He realized, man, this is bad. I got to do something and David knew what he was supposed to do but took Nathan to come and give him the nudge to tell him what he had to do then wise terminology use the right words go look at Proverbs 15.23 Proverbs chapter 15 verse 23 what does Solomon tell us a man has joy in an apt answer and how delightful is a timely word Proverbs 15.23 isn't that a great proverb? How delightful is a timely word. Don't you like when you're down in the dumps and someone comes along and encourages you and says, hey man, I'm praying for you. Hey man, I really do appreciate you. Doesn't that encourage you? The timely word, when you're down in the dumps, you just need someone. There's usually people who have no idea what you're going through. They just come by and they pat you on the shoulder and say, hey man, I love you. You know, Isn't that great? We need that. What the trouble is, we don't do it enough. When's the last time you went to someone and just said, hey man, I'm praying for you, I'm glad you're here. Well, when was the last time we ever did it? Just think we did it all the time, every day. Just told some boy, there's some little note saying, I I really do appreciate you. Look also at um, Proverbs 25, verse 11. Proverbs 25, verse 11. What does Solomon tell us again? Like apples of gold and the settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances Getting a nice gift of jewelry ladies, doesn't that perk you up? Yeah. Or any kind of a gift. Is a word spoken in the right circumstances. Again, let's see the word right circumstances again. Then finally, spiritual temperance or humility, we too have sinned. We can't cast that first stone, can we? Let's look at the third part, chapter 12. David, the submissive, you may have noticed the sign on our, the message on our sign a couple of weeks ago, said forbidden fruit creates many jams. That's true. Forbidden fruit is immorality. Creates jams in our life. We see the bitter event, the death of Bathsheba's first son. We see David's travail here, what he's going through. Look at verse 15. So Nathan went home, and then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David. Notice how she's always called Uriah's widow? There's one exception. We see that in verse 24. Usually she is always referred to as the wife of Uriah. In the Lord's eyes, who is she still married to? Uriah. says that she was very sick. David therefore inquired of God and for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, he sp- we spoke to him. And he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? He might commit suicide. They did everything they could to try to encourage David. Verse 19, but, there's a divine but there, you know, circle it. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. What does David do? He goes off by himself. And he spends time alone with God. He fasts. He prays. He does everything he can to hopefully that God would spare his son. It says David inquired of God. The word means to plead, means to beg, like any father would do if your child was on deathbed. What would you do? You'd be there begging God to spare your child, would you not? Seven days, David is begging God to spare his son. Even though Nathan told him, the son shall die. So why is David still begging God? Because David knows that God is a merciful, loving, graceful God. And God does change his mind. He changed his mind about Nineveh. He said, I'm going to destroy the city in 40 days. What happened? God didn't destroy the city, did he? Here's David sitting there knowing God is full of mercy and grace. And that's the only thing you could cling to. When you're in a whirlwind, the only thing you can really cling to is that your God is a merciful, loving, graceful God. We see David's testimony in verse 19 here. And you know, he said, Saul is dead. So what does David do? So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. He came to the house of the Lord and worshipped. They came to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. And his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While a child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when a child died, you rose and ate food. David doesn't make sense. Why are you acting this way now? Verse 24. Well, let's back up here. Verse 22. And he said, While a child was still alive, I fasted and I wept, and I, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Right? Who knows what the Lord's going to do? Who knows? The Lord may still be gracious to me. But now that he's died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No. I should go to him. I should go to the grave but he'll never return to me. Some people interpret this as going to heaven, infant salvation. I'm gonna go to, I'll see my child in heaven. Now I don't know what you believe by infant salvation. I believe God does take babies to heaven, but it's not, I don't believe in the age of accountability. Now we may disagree on that, that's fine, we can discuss about it later, but I believe God is a loving, gracious God, and God does what's right. It's up to God whether that child goes to heaven, I believe that child does. So that's just what I believe. Really there's nothing in scripture that says babies go to heaven. But I believe God's a gracious God. Because we had a miscarriage, and I believe that little baby is in heaven. But David's here. He realizes he cannot change what happened. He can only control how he's going to respond to God. And how does he respond to God? By worshiping him. He doesn't blame God doesn't get bitter usually when something bad happens people either run away from god or they run to god Ed and i were talking about that this morning ed lost a grandson right but at that time you weren't really living for the lord were you at it took that event to drive you close to god right am i stating the facts correctly it could have driven ed farther away he was already <laughs> well i was not speaking in terms of god to begin with right you could sat there and said, God, you must really hate me because you're doing all these bad things. No, what does it do? It draws him closer to God. And that's what happens to many Christians. When bad things happen, they start blaming God. That's why they don't see him in church anymore. They don't read the Word anymore because something bad and they have to blame God. How can a loving God allow this to happen? Well, you better be thankful loving God did allow it to happen. They're not a vengeful God, not a spiteful God. But a loving, gracious God who knows what's best for every single person in this room, right? You can't change what happened. You can only control how you respond to situations. And this is a mature Christian's response to any kind of problems we have in our lives. Going to God in worship. An immature Christian will run away from God and blame God and blame the parents and blame Twinkies and blame everything else. So here's David's testimony. What a testimony it was. And notice the blessed event, the birth of Bathsheba's foremost son, Solomon, verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now, the Lord loved him. That's the baby, Solomon. And sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. And Jedediah means beloved by the Lord. What does this tell us? Life goes on, doesn't it? Life goes on. And we just see what David felt. How do you think Bathsheba felt? I think that women have a greater connection to their children than men do. They spend nine months bearing them, and they go through the birthing period process. Then the weeks that follow, I just never realized what Becky went through after our children were born. But spending a week with Amy after the baby was born. I know what mothers go through the first week after a baby's born. It's not always easy, is it? Trying to get the child to nurse. I mean, and Amy hurt her backbone, and so they had to go out into the living room to nurse, so I was regulated to the bathroom, not to the bathroom, but to the bedroom in the back. That baby's nursing. Okay. Can I I come out now? No, she's still nursing. So I spent a week in in the bedroom. But that's okay. But now what Amy went through. Think what Bathsheba went through. She lost a child. Wow. John Butler gives us some insight here. I'd like to read to you. He says, Some folks insist that in giving Solomon to David and Bathsheba, that God sanctioned their adulterous marriage, which earlier he disapproved. But Solomon's birth does not sanction the godful marriage. His birth only emphasizes God's grace. Though the marriage was a sullied one, God did not demand that they break it. And he goes on to say, Some pervert the grace of God in the birth of Solomon by saying that if David had not sinned, there would be no Solomon. Well, that is not true. Such a statement makes God weak and turns the grace of our God into lasciviousness. If God can bring a Solomon out of a sinful situation, how much more could God also have brought a Solomon out of a sanctified situation? If David had not sinned, there, there would have been an heir, a better Solomon. Sin never promotes blessings, it only diminishes blessings. Think how much better it would have been to, to have Solomon without the sin problem. And that's true. It was God's will for David to have a child named Solomon to be his heir. don't you think God could have worked that out in his timing, his way. Yeah. Let me see David the soldier in the last part of chapter twelve here. Let me see David's conquest in verse twenty six through twenty nine. Now Joab fought against Rahab, the sons of Ammon, and captured the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rahab. I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, as I capture the city and myself and be named after me. So this is the city they be besieging that David should have been at the first place. So, if I so the conqueror, took him over a year. It's a long time. So David goes there, so he gets credit for the victory. Verse 30 talks about the crown. says there was a weight of talent of gold. That's about 75 pounds, some commentators think, 50 to 75 pounds. Let me see the captives. Verse 31 is a disturbing verse. He also brought out people who were in it and set them under the saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the, bilk, the brick kiln, kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon, and David and the people returned to Jerusalem. After David captured the city, most commentators believe that David put the inhabitants to work. He put them under, or consigned them to labor, as NIV has. And the New King James says, put them to work. Make, the phrase make them pass of the brick clean" means to make bricks. However, 1 Chronicles chapter 20 tells us something different. 1 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 3. 1 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 3. As he brought the people who were in it and cut them with saws and with sharp instruments and with axes. This verse tells us David killed them in, in humane ways. Cut them in half. Chopped them up with axes. The reason is, they say, because how Ammon treated their captives. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. And this may be why, if this is true, that David did that. Most commentators believe that David just put them to work and didn't torture them and kill them. But if he did torture them and kill them, they say this is the reason why. First Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. Amites were going to go and attack a city. Look at verse 2. But Naash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition and I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you in the city. So that's what they would do to people. They will gouge out eyes. Look also at Amos, chapter 1, verse 13. Amos, chapter 1, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Okay, find Daniel, you find Hosea, and Joel, then you find Amos. Who knows what Amos, chapter 1, verse 13, tells us? This is why God's judging them. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, the son of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke his punishment, because they ripped open pregnant women of Gilead. So the Ammonites treated their captives terribly. And that might be one of the reasons why David did this to them. But I sort of think that he just put them to work. Let's look at some instructions on the principles of sowing and reaping. There's three or four things we want to learn. Some principles that help us. David right now is in the center of the whirlwind. He's beginning to reap what he had sowed. And this just did not happen before when the baby was born. David was continually in that whirlwind while his sons rebelled against him. This whirlwind lasted a long period of time. And it just didn't affect David. It affected other people. So how did David survive this storm? Maybe you're in this period now reaping the whirlwind or maybe you're reaping the whirlwind of someone else's sin maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a relative maybe a close friend you're one of the su- innocent people who are suffering because of that person's whirlwind that he is in right now or she is in right now those are David's response we talked about these a little bit already but let's talk about them contrite prayer David fasted and prayed he asked God for more grace he asked for the life of the baby So David didn't give up, he continued to pray. So when you're in the midst of the whirlwind, what do you do? You keep on praying. When we're reaping what we've sown, we need to spend time with God and pray for God's grace and mercy. Instead of running from God, we need to run to God. Secondly, consent to or accept the consequences. That's what David did. David waited seven days for God to answer his prayer. and when he discovered God answered no what did he do he cleaned himself up went to worship God God says no I'm I'm not going to answer your prayer remember God answers one of three ways yes no or wait God says no but David still worshiped no he cleaned up you didn't come to church all dirty. I have problems with people who go to come and say, I didn't come to church dressed as I want to. I didn't come dressed up in holy jeans and, and looking ugly and you know, not washing my hair, not shaving, and, and just looking ugly because God doesn't matter what I look like on the outside. God just cares about what looks on the inside. But this verse tells us what did David do? He cleaned himself up before he went to worship. Cleaned himself up? Isn't that what Job did? Look at Job chapter 1. Remember, what did Job lose? This is in one word. Yeah, except his wife. But we won't hold that against him. But he lost everything. Everything. I'm I'm going the wrong way. Here we go. I'll find it. Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Wow. We must guard against anger when we're in the whirlwind, against bitterness, against blaming God, See, David accepts the consequences and worships God. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. When kids are told no, what do they do? They pout. They go to their room, slam the door, say, you don't move me. I'll go ask Dad. Dad will do it. Dad always says, yeah, sure, go ahead. I don't care. When I play with knives, go ahead. Just don't tell Mom. The kids do that, and we do the same thing sometimes. God says no. We pout. We pout. I'm going to go to church for a week. I'm going to stay home from next Sunday. I'll show God who's boss. How silly does that sound, right? They're all going to do all this stuff. They can make God upset. You know. But that's how we think, right? So we consent to and accept the consequences, and we continue to live. Life goes on. He comforts his wife. They both went through a period of grieving, but they kept on living. Many people give up. They commit suicide. They become more involved with drunkenness or mm. drugs or immorality. They go off the deep end. It shows us that it takes grace to endure the whirlwind. Doesn't it? It takes grace to put up with the situation God puts you in. And you know what? The storm does calm, does it not? And we can look back on our situation and see what God was trying to teach us. Don't dwell on the past. I think too many Christians dwell on the past. What did David say in Philippians? I forget. I go on forward. I strive through knowing God. All of us had crummy pasts, haven't we? Bad things have happened. Terrible things have happened. Things didn't work out like we planned. Didn't happen right but God goes on right we can learn from but it says we need to really ignore and forget but it's hard to forget but we just need to put it in the past what's, what's important right now is, is now what's important right now is, is tomorrow right isn't that what's really important how am I going to live my life the rest of my life no matter how long it might be Now we learn from our mistakes, don't we? At least I hope we do. We don't make the same mistake twice. But sometimes we do, don't we? I say to myself, big dummy, I can't believe you did that. Well, believe it. Becky believes it all the time. Sure, I I can believe it. I can believe you do this again. So we don't ignore or forget what happened, but we just got to put it behind us. We need to remember, don't give up. Christians are characterized, I think, by three things. They're, They're negative, they're pessimistic, and they quit. Those are three things that never should characterize a Christian in my opinion. We should never be negative, always positive, never pessimistic, always optimistic, and never quit. We keep on going. Wouldn't then Paul say that? I press on. So don't quit. Don't give up. Don't blame God. Don't be negative. Christians should never be negative. We always be positive. One person said this. Sometimes we focus so much on what we have lost that we forget what we have. Think, what do you have? We've been thankful this Thanksgiving period, right? What do we have? Got my son and daughter-in-law close by. Don't have the baby close by, but that can be rectified. You know? just baby baby, or Becky gets baby pictures almost every day. I'm sure you've seen them already. If you haven't, just stick around; you will be thankful for what we have. Another person says, "Bitterness and regret over yesterday's pain can rob us of today's joy. Why do we allow that to happen in our lives? Why do we allow ourselves to have our joy robbed because of what happened yesterday? This is the day the Lord has made. What does it say after that? Let us be glad. Let us be glad and what? Rejoice in it. This is the day. The interpretation, he's talking about the day of the Lord when he comes back, but it applies for us today. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Don't dwell on the past. Some definite reminders, we're almost done. Remember, it is a lonely experience. When you're in a whirlwind of sin, it seems like you're all alone. And David probably felt that way. Who am I going to talk to? And there's, a, there's this emotional reality that we feel like we're alone nobody understands what I'm going through but you know what there's some of the world's experience just what you did (laughs) they know what you're going through two it's a learning experience go to Psalm 32 Psalm 32 doesn't just describe what David did David tells us what we're supposed to do now look at Psalm 32 look at verse 8 So we usually stop at verses 4 and 5. Let's start at verse 6. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? About his sin. I was physically and personally and emotionally suffering. Verse 5 I acknowledge my sin unto thee. I confessed it, and you forgave me the guilt. That's what you're supposed to do, David says ask for forgiveness. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in the time when thou mayest be found. When you find yourself in a situation like mine, what are you supposed to do? Pray. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Think about Houston. Did a great flood reach them? Do you think they're picking up their lives after it? Life goes on, Right? Thou art my hiding place, David says. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. And did God take care of David? So he says, I will instruct you and teach you the way which you should go. When you find yourself in sin, this is the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include a bit and a brawl to hold them in check. Otherwise they'll not come near you. I've been around a horse and a donkey? We're trying to get a donkey to do something. Our dog's like that. She's obstinate. She's stiff-necked. Come on, ladies. Time to go for a walk. It's 11 o'clock at night. I want to go to bed. Let's go. She sits there. Come on. And it gets to the point where we, we both have to be out there. She won't leave until Becky comes out. Or she won't leave until I come out. Then she's looking for coyotes. She's had a problem with the coyote. And we're literally dragging this dog. And sometimes we don't make it. Now there's stuff all over the yard. So don't go walk in the yard over there. I haven't cleaned it up yet. Well, Jeffrey hasn't cleaned it up yet. So you've got to wait for the time it gets cleaned up. Because who knows what you might find there. Because she's just, see, what I'm talking about. you know what I'm talking about. Don't be a mule, David says. Don't go through I did and make God drag me through all this stuff. Because I refuse to confess my sin and ask forgiveness. That's what David's saying here. Many are like the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. See, that's what the wicked do. The wicked are like mules. They don't want to listen to God's word. They don't want to do what God tells them. He says in verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice in your righteous ones and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Just confess your sin when you sin. Just do it. It's also a lowly experience. You think this event humbled David? Yeah, it humbles us too. Then the fourth thing is not a lasting experience. Like I said, the storms end, and God sees us through it. It's like First Corinthians chapter ten. Let's turn there. I think it's First Corinthians chapter ten. Maybe not. Maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This just came to my mind right now. I didn't look this up before. Maybe one of you can help me. It talks about trials. The Lord sees through trials in Corinthians. Pete, do you know where that's at? Does it come to mind? You know what verse I'm talking about? It's in Corinthians. Oh, wow. Well, it took the wife. See, it takes the wife to help us out. There you go. That's it. You got it, you nailed it. First. Let's clarify that. It's the first one. Look at it says, No temptation or trial, that word goes either way. Has overtake you, but such as is common to man, then God is faithful, and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. It's like going through a long tunnel, there's always a light at the end. God doesn't take you out of the tumble, tunnel, He just helps you go through the tunnel. So it does end. It's not a lasting experience. And God will see us through it. So not any moment, any Christian, anywhere, can fail God. You're never exempt. One person said this, the number one cause of atheism is Christians who proclaim God with their mouths and deny him with their lifestyles do not you think that might be probably true? See, so we can cover our sins and we're not going to prosper. That's what Proverbs 28, 13 says, don't cover your sins, right? Look at that, Proverbs 18. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28 verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. See, the more David tried to cover his sin, what happened? Things got worse and worse and worse. Like a lie. You tell one lie, then what do you got to do? Keep on lying. We need to face our sins immediately by confessing it and repenting of it and asking our to forgive us. That's 1 John 1, 9, Right? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some people, when they read this thing, they think it's oh, only talking about immorality and I'm not involved in immorality, so this doesn't apply to me. You know what? It does apply whether you're in an immoral situation or not. If you're lying, you're being deceitful, having problems with materialism, or not having a proper attitude, always argumentative, hating God, there's no problems too. We figure, well, I've never committed immorality, so I'm okay. Probably you're not okay if you think that way. There's always some sin we're involved with. And we need to confess it right, away. not just the sin of immorality, but any sin that comes into our life. See, God's grace counsels the dead of sin, but doesn't always necessarily counsel out the consequences of sin. God's forgiveness is always sure, but so is sinful, the harmful fallout of sin. So how many people, innocent people suffer because of our sin? Doesn't he think David would have asked that question to himself that night? who was on that balcony looking at Bathsheba and said to himself, I wonder how this is going to play out. So that's what we need to ask ourselves. I wonder how this is going to play out if I do this thing I know I'm not supposed to be doing. You've all heard the story of Camelot, right? King Arthur... Who's the queen, Guinevere? Remember Sir Lancelot? Well, this guy uses this illustration. He says, probably knows the story better. It illustrates how the sweet, stolen waters of adultery turns invariably sour than the story of Camelot. In this epic tale, the relationship of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere is passed upon when Arthur's most renowned and trusted knight, Lancelot, gingerly slips his toe across the marital boundary. It started with a look, an innocent look, without premeditation or evil intent, there was a short, slippery step from a look to lust, from infatuation to infidelity. The look eventually led to a touch. The touch sometimes later led to a kiss. The kiss to adultery. And adultery to tragedy. Now this just doesn't apply to immorality. It applies to everything. The boss will miss this pencil or if I cheat on my whatever. Who's going to miss that? Or if I take this one little thing, if I tell this little white lie, see, all it does, we gingerly slip our toes over these boundary lines. And it's a slippery step that leads to other things. But thank God our God is a loving, gracious God. So, are you in the whirlwind this morning? Turn to God. Even if you're not in the world when morning, where should we be? Turning to God. Trust in him. Because he always sees us through. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful again for your word and for the life of David. We spent three weeks talking about this, Lord. And I pray that it leaves an indebitable impression upon our lives. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Lord, protect us from stepping over this boundary. Think about the consequences or think about your word and just help us, Lord, live a life that's holy and acceptable before you. Again, Lord, we're so thankful we can spend this morning in your house. Give us the opportunity to be a witness for you this coming week, Lord. And we do ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing. Uh, Is in your songbook. Let's turn to it. It's the same hymn that we have in our bulletin. Hymn number 335, turn your eyes upon Jesus. So when you find that, would you please stand? Hymn number 335, turn your eyes upon Jesus. We'll sing it through twice. All right, all right. Or watch the hand. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Us, look full into wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace one more time turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Don't forget tonight. Six, we have our speaker, then we have our birthday bash afterwards. So bring all your leftover turkey stuff. And um, there's a number of birthdays we'll be celebrating as well, and you're all invited. We're glad the steels are here with us. And one of these days we'll have Steel Pete come and tell us what they've been doing. It's a lot, but would you come and close us in prayer this morning?